The early 20th century was a turbulent period for China. Some Western countries were vying with one another, seeking to build their influence in and around China. Britain had basically dominated the entire 19th century, with colonies spread across five continents. In the early 20th century, some one-third of the commercial vessels around the world were flying the Union Jack. The French had by then conquered Southeast Asia. The Germans had built a lot of European-style houses in China's Shandong province, and Russia and Japan were fighting a war in China's Northeast region. In contrast with all the muscle these countries were flexing, China was still deeply mired in troubles both internal and external. This is the historical context under which Dunhuang became an increasingly popular destination for sinologists, archaeologists and explorers from Western countries. Hi, welcome back to the Why We Love Dunhuang podcast. In our last episode, we talked about Mark Oral Stein, the first European archaeologist who visited the Dunhuang Mogao caves and recognized the great value inside them. Stein was the first, but he was not the only explorer to have discovered the treasure housed inside the Mogao caves, especially the library cave, Cave 17 which contained piles of Buddhist scriptures, social documents, silk paintings, embroideries, and more. Not long after Stein left Dunhuang with his 24 large cases of valuable items, the Mugao Caves received another batch of foreign visitors, a team led by French explorer Paul Pelliot. Pelliot was born in Paris on May 28, 1878. Initially, he wanted to pursue a career as a diplomat. He studied both English and Chinese. He was a talented student and had learned Chinese really well at school. He had a gift for languages, and he also learned Mongolian, Arabic, Persian, Turkic, Tibetan and Sanskrit. Those Asian language skills proved very valuable to Pelio, particularly when it came to his exploration of the Magao Library Cave. On June 17, 1906, an expedition led by Pelio left Paris. They travelled by rail through Moscow to China's Xinjiang. In Xinjiang's capital city, Urumqi, Pelio heard about the discovery of manuscripts at an oasis on the ancient Silk Road named Dunhuang. In March 1908, driven by an archaeological instinct, Pelio arrived in Dunhuang. That was only three months after Mark Orlstein left. Pelio was 29 years old at the time. He was known in his own country as a handsome, elegant person who sometimes behaved like an army officer. His fluent Chinese quickly helped him gain the trust of Wan Yuan Lu, the Taoist abbot guarding the Magao caves. There was a professional photographer in his team, so a lot of pictures were taken of the Magao caves. 
In Pelio's notes, he wrote, 3rd of March, 1908, I finally entered into that sacred chamber. I was in a cave about 2.5 meters long and wide. Its three walls were packed meters high with scrolls piled two to three layers deep. When Pelio entered the library cave, he noticed that the piles had obviously been disturbed by Stein, but he was still excited about what remained in the cave. Later we came to know that there were over 50,000 items stored in the Magao library cave. Neither Stein nor Pelio could remove them all in one go. Stein, whilst very capable in many Indo-European languages, did not know Chinese or any other Asian language, for that matter. This meant he could not be really selective about which documents he would like to take back to Britain. This was not the case for Pelio. Because of his skills in Chinese and a few other Central Asian languages, Pelio had the ability to examine the documents on the spot and select the best ones to take away. After he bribed the ever-watchful Abbot Wang to gain access to the library cave, Pelio spent three weeks in the cave sorting and selecting. It is said that during that time he opened and checked 1,000 scrolls per day. Pelio handed over 500 teals of silver, which is now equivalent to about 12,000 US dollars, in exchange for more than 6,000 pieces of manuscripts from Abbot Wang. It is commonly agreed by Dunhuang scholars that because Pelio knew Chinese and other Central Asian languages, his selection of material was much better than Stein's collection. As a result of these early, eager treasure hunters, the library cave was totally messed up. The original on-site clues which might have explained the reason for building it and the history behind this library cave were lost forever. There are no photos of the library cave left today, other than the one taken by Pelio's team featuring the young fellow himself sitting in a small cave enclosure surrounded by the piles of scrolls through which he was searching. In 1909, China's Qing dynasty had entered its final years. Before Pelio left China, he was welcomed at a reception in Beijing to meet some Chinese scholars. On that occasion, he displayed some of the scrolls he had obtained from the Dunhuang Library Cave. The Chinese scholars who attended the meeting were shocked. They instantly realized the significant value of those documents and reported this to government officials. In the winter of 1909, Qing government authorities finally realized the loss of national treasures and issued an order to purchase and transport all the items remaining in the Magao Library Cave to China's capital, Beijing. Unfortunately, the money allocated by the central government never reached Abbot Wang. As we can guess, the cunning cavekeeper concealed a substantial quantity of the documents before they could be sent to Beijing. Those precious items were not even placed in boxes before they embarked on a journey of more than 2,500 kilometers to Beijing. They were merely covered by straw during the journey. Many artifacts that did leave Dunhuang were either lost or damaged along the way due to the rampant greed and ignorance of various levels of Qing dynasty officials. 
When the cultural relics from the library cave arrived in Beijing in 1910, China had just started building its first modern-day national library. The building of a national library in China came 40 years later than in Japan, 120 years later than in France, and 160 years later than in Britain. It's probably beyond our imagination today that the official who oversaw the transportation of the library cave documents actually ordered them to be delivered to his own home. Some of the most delicate manuscripts were embezzled. In order to prevent other people from getting to know what he did, he had many pieces torn into several additional pieces to manufacture an illusion that nothing had been lost. Once the Dunhuang Mogao Library Cave had become known to outsiders, it gained worldwide attention and attracted many more adventurers bent on getting hold of its collection. Even after the Chinese government officially shipped the collection to Beijing. There were, of course, large numbers of artifacts left behind with the connivance of Abbot Wang and local officials. In 1911, a team of Japanese explorers visited Dunhuang and the surrounding area. They secretly seized over 400 items from Abbot Wang during their eight-week stay. When they left, they secretly took with them lots of material, the whereabouts of which remains to this day unknown. Germans, Americans, and Russians all flocked in. The Russians were late arrivals. In 1914, an expedition led by Russian Orientalist Sergei Oldenburg arrived in Dunhuang. During their five-month stay, they took more than 2,000 photos, drew the maps of over 400 caves, and duplicated a few hundred murals. Like all their forerunners, the Russian team took lots of valuable relics with them. Among them were some Buddhist murals, which they physically peeled off the walls. By the time the newly knighted Sir Mark Orlstein finally returned to Dunhuang in 1914 for another expedition, China's Qing dynasty had collapsed more than two years earlier. He managed to purchase more than 500 items from Abbot Wang. In 1924, Harvard professor Langdon Warner led an archaeological team from his university in an expedition to Dunhuang. The library cave was almost empty by then. Disappointed, Warner came up with a special chemical solution for detaching wall paintings. He applied strong glue to more than a dozen paintings before placing cloth against them. The moment the cloth was pulled away, the paintings were detached from the walls. In the meantime, Warner also took away a coloured statue erected more than 1,000 years earlier. Warner's behaviour caused severe damage to the Magao caves, especially the wall paintings. After a few more years of visits by frantic scavengers, there was absolutely nothing left in the Dunhuang Mogao Library Cave. Now it's an empty cave, numbered Cave 17. The cultural relics that once belonged to the cave are scattered across more than 10 countries around the world. There is a popular saying about the relics among modern Dunhuang scholars. 
The British hold most of the items. The French hold the best of them. The Japanese have the most secret items. The Russians' collection is the most diverse. While China has lots of damaged items. Today, most of the items that French archaeologist Paul Pelliot collected from the Dunhuang Mugao caves are stored in the Guimet Museum in Paris. Some Chinese scholars call Pelliot a robber. However, some scholars argue that if not for Pelliot, Sinology would have been an orphan. The early 20th-century Chinese scholar Chen Yinchue once said, "Dunhuang's name represents the most significant and shameful losses in the history of Chinese study." Abbot Wang Yuanlu died in 1931. After his discovery of the library cave, he never left Dunhuang. There have been a lot of disputes regarding how to view this slim, smiling Taoist abbot. Some people say he contributed a lot to the maintenance of the Mugao caves. Some describe him as a short-sighted religious person who only knew small tricks but lacked real wisdom. Some regard him as a traitor in China's cultural history. Though now scattered. The treasures found in the caves at Dunhuang and the walls of the caves themselves still have many amazing stories to tell, and we're here to tell them in the following episodes of Why We Love Dunhuang. Special thanks go out to the Dunhuang Academy and Sanliang Chongdu for contributing to the content of this podcast. If you like the show, you're welcome to subscribe and to give us a five-star rating. I'm Graham Stevens. See you on the next episode of Why We Love Dunhuang.